0: Hello and welcome to the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. My name is Aidan Muir and I'm here with my co-host Leah Heigl and this is episode 75 where we will be doing another Q&A. So the first question we've got is why is there a huge range in recommendations for B12 for vegans?
1: So definitely up my alley this question. Um I think it's it's for a few reasons. So I think generally people do way overcomplicate B12 recommendations, particularly around supplementation, but that's probably because there is so much just noise around this subject. So there are different kind of dosages, different kinds of of b12 that you can take at different frequencies you know you can get your injections or you can supplement there's different methods of taking supplements so i think like it is a bit of a confusing topic um but kind of just to set the record straight like my general recommendation is that uh if you're if you are plant-based plant-based you should probably be taking a b12 supplement like relying on fortified foods probably not the best option, just given the fact that if you leave B12 deficiency untreated for a long time, that it, it can have pretty devastating consequences in terms of nerve damage and brain damage. So supplementation for vegans, definitely a must, but how you go about that is generally I recommend um, over anything, probably cyanocobalamin in the form of cyanocobalamin instead of any other kind of B12 in that range of kind of two to 500 micrograms daily or a thousand micrograms a few times per week. Um, I think that's probably like one of the most confusing points when you're looking at all the B12 supplements is they're all different dosages. It's not like vitamin D where it's like pretty consistent yeah, across everything's the board. Like a thousand. Yeah. There's just like so many different dosage kinds in B12. Um, but that's what I would recommend if you're going for a supplement and then in terms of how you would take it. So there's tablets, there's sublingual that you kind of dissolve under your tongue there's spray and there's a lot of discussion of like which one is better etc etc they're all fine (laughs) like in my opinion they're all good like usually the dosage is so high that the little bit of difference in absorption from method to method doesn't really matter. Um, so any are good. Um, and then of course, if you don't want to supplement, you can get B12 injections every two to three months with your GP. Um, so in terms of yeah, B12 supplementation, I would leave it at that and not overthink it. So second question is, why does being in a deficit make you feel sick slash nauseous Is it low blood sugars?
0: Starting with the low blood sugars aspect, i say it's unlikely for that to be an explanation. I I have had a lot of clients who will feel sick, nauseous, or lightheaded or anything like that, and assume that it's low blood sugars, so then they will have sugar or carbohydrates or something like that to feel better, and often they do feel better when they do that. But one of the things that definitely comes to my mind first in that situation is... If that's something that does happen regularly, what I personally would do is I would test blood glucose levels. I'll get one of those things that you can test, they're relatively cheap to get, and I'll test because you can confirm your hypothesis really easily. Like, say the fasting range is 3.5 to 5.5, and obviously you can go higher when you're eating and stuff like that. But what we define as low blood sugars is below four with symptoms. Like, if you're experiencing these symptoms and you're below four, that would be defined as a hypo. Those are actually quite rare in people who are not um, injecting insulin. Like they do happen, but they're quite rare. And if you commonly experience these symptoms, like I take that test and if that's not it, then I'd be looking for another explanation, which is probably more likely. In terms of other explanations, um, lightheadedness, which could factor in with the nauseousness and stuff like that. In some cases that can be low blood pressure, particularly for people on medication, but even even with somebody who's just made a significant change in their diet, particularly if you have gone from a higher sodium diet to a lower sodium diet relatively quickly, some people find that if they add sodium, they just feel better. They feel less nauseous as well. That's one option. Same thing with other electrolytes as well. If you go from eating more food to eating less food, you might be having less electrolytes. And then what I think is more likely to be the case is just being on quite few calories in relation to your needs, eating far less food than normal being hungry and being nauseous often go hand in hand as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's a big one. I think people overlook that as being a thing. And, like, if you're excessively hungry, you're probably not going to feel awesome, might be a bit nauseous and lightheaded.
0: Yeah. So, like, I, don't know, I, I feel like there's a few solutions to this. Like, one of them I personally would go to with a lot of people if it, if it is out of hand is a smaller calorie deficit mm-hmm. or not being in the deficit for, for so long potentially. But, yeah, there's there's many ways to approach it. The next question we'll be looking at is: What are your thoughts on body weight set point?
1: I feel like this could almost be a whole podcast in itself. Yeah, I but, thought this as well when, when I saw this question. Let's kind of like give it a crack. It like, so set point theory propo- proposes that your body has a weight where it kind of like naturally likes to sit, and it will compensate in certain ways to have you sitting, you know, within that body fat or body weight range. I, I come from like two perspectives with set point theory. I think in one, on one hand, it is something that, you know, may be a thing. I think some people sit naturally leaner than other people, regardless, just genetically. So I think that is part of set point theory and that, yeah, some people are going to be leaner. Some people are naturally going to hold a little bit more body fat and sit more comfortably there. But I think there's quite a few ways in which it does fall apart. I think the, the biggest one that always crops up for me is like the environment thing. So we know that, you know, the environment that you're living in and your behaviours are going to dictate a lot of kind of what your body looks like or where you sit weight wise. Um, and that's going to be regardless of kind of the genetic stuff. Like that's, I think that's going to have a, a lot more of an impact overall. So that, that definitely comes into play.
0: I very much think that, The compensations are very real like these are measurable phenomenons we see metabolic adaptation we see um, both um as a metabolic rate reduce and also non-exercise activity thermogenesis like energy burns through informal movement typically decreases when people go into a calorie deficit particularly the larger deficit is or for if it's going on for longer and we also see it go the other way if somebody goes into a calorie surplus it decreases so those compensations exist um, I think they're less relevant than a lot of people would think of. Like if you if you read a lot about set point theory, you start feeling like the body has this massive compensation that prevents weight loss after a certain point. But those are, those are relatively small, but they are, they are real and they are a factor in all of this. Beyond that, something I think is, is a bigger factor is changes in appetite and changes in desire to eat as well. When people lose a lot of weight, on average, the desire to eat and the amount of calories that they would consume under what we'd call like an ad libitum environment, which just eating freely or whatever, typically increases pretty significantly. Um, we see this particularly in scenarios where people get quite lean, like bodybuilding shows and stuff like that. If people eat ad libitum after being super, super lean, they mm-hmm. often eat a lot of calories. Um, those things are very real, but adding onto those compensations, I personally think that these compensations are stronger under weight loss conditions than they are under weight gain yeah. conditions. And set point theory kind of implies that, I don't know, say somebody normally sits around 80 kilos, that if they if they lost weight down to 75 kilos or something like that, that the pull is going to be relatively equal to if they had gained up to 85 or something like that. Like, it doesn't directly state that, mm. but it's like, it's kind of implied that it goes in both directions almost equally is how i'd assume it and this is where i'm talking into s- about semantics because it's kind of like that's my own interpretation sure. that's not actually the evidence-based way of looking at it or whatever yeah. but when i look at it from that perspective it seems at a population level it is easier for people to gain weight than it is to lose weight it seems like we have a lot more compensations that are stronger preventing weight loss than preventing weight gain and when i look at it from that perspective i start thinking In terms of my definitions of do I believe we have set points and compensations and stuff like that, I do think so to a certain degree. But I also extend that to being like I just think it's very hard for people to lose weight and maintain that weight loss because of some of these compensations. Like I think that is a stronger pull than the other direction.
1: Yeah, I'd 100% agree with that. Um, So the next question is, for clients looking to lose weight, do you set protein targets based on goal body weight or current body weight?
0: I do... Either to a certain degree. So, I'll address why I don't do either of them in all cases. So, like with the goal body weight, I I find it silly in some cases. What I mean by that is, I work with some people who are 200 kilos and I work with others who are 50 kilos. And it's kind of like if I work with that 200 kilo person and they tell me their goal weight is 100 kilos, should I be setting them a different protein target to somebody who's 200 kilos who tells me their goal weight is 150? I personally don't think so. I think I should deal with them in the situation they're currently in.
1: Yeah, I think the goal body weight is kind of irrelevant at that point to the protein intake. Yeah,
0: Yeah. and even though I've used an extreme example, I like to use extreme examples to kind of like extrapolate my thinking to like Mm. smallest case scenarios. But using using that, it's like, okay, well, then does that mean should I use current body weight? And the reason why I don't do current body weight in that 200 kilo example is because our protein needs are far more linked to how much lean body mass we Mm -hmm. have. Than how much we weigh overall, so th- we do have research showing that for people who are in a calorie deficit trying to maintain as much muscle mass as possible, we're looking at two point three to three point one grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. Yeah, and it's like, well, if, if we have that, I might use that. And some people will be like, well, how do you know what that person's lean mass is or their mm-hmm. fat-free mass? I could get them to have a DEXA or something like that, but like instead, what I think makes more sense is just estimating, right? Hundred percent. Because if the range is two point three to three point one. And I'm worried that I've got my estimation wrong. I can just go towards the higher end of the range mm-hmm. and guarantee that we maximise that. And even in those cases, it's like that's also kind of assuming that they're capable of hitting the optimal target realistically. If they're not totally. capable, I'll just do whatever they're realistically. Whatever's capable of doing.
1: logistically possible in that yeah. scenario. Yeah. Yeah. And there's always things like using adjusted body weight calculations yeah. and that's something you could you could do if you are sitting, you know, if you have a higher body fat percentage and you don't want to say use that two hundred kilos to, to set the protein target, adjusted body weight is something that you might use. But for me, I, I tend to just estimate lean body mass, depending on like what that person looks like, what they do and their weight.
0: Does having salt pre-workout help performance in the gym?
1: So maybe maybe. If you have a pretty low sodium intake and you're experiencing things like low blood pressure during training, it could definitely make sense for you to have salt pre-training, but it's not necessary for everybody. So I think generally, like when I think of the athletes that I work with, they're going to be getting enough sodium usually through their diet, just naturally through through eating that I'm not going to put more sodium intake on top of that, unless they do have like really high sweat rates and heaps of sessions a week and et cetera, like maybe an endurance athlete or something. Um, But I've seen it in the context a lot lately of people who are just general strength training um, and people recommending that you use salt pre-training. And I, I don't think it is necessary for most people, unless you have like that experience of, of being lightheaded and feeling like you have low blood pressure during your session.
0: Yeah, I, I agree, and then I see the exceptions. Um, there's two people who I really see promoting this, Stan Effiting and Steffi Cohen. They talk yeah. about it heaps. Yeah. And I can see where they're coming from, even though I wouldn't extend it to the broad population of people who train and stuff like that, because if you get the average person who trains relatively hard to do this, I don't think it makes much difference. Yeah. I think in some cases it could be detrimental, particularly, particularly considering at a population level blood pressure issues and everything like that, like mm. a lot of people have high blood pressure. But... In the context of using CNF things like vertical diet as an example, like it's pretty much red meat, white rice, (laughs) vegetables, fruit. Um, If somebody followed that without adding sodium to their diet and they ate completely unprocessed foods and they didn't add sodium to their diet, they end up on a really low sodium diet. And then they Mm -hmm. also train hard and they sweat. So they've got this combination of these two things and they end up experiencing these things. They end up getting um, lightheaded they're training suffering, they're not as energetic and everything like that. You get that person to have salt pre-workout and they feel better. Um, the example Stan often uses is the lightheaded feeling. Like when you watch somebody get up off a leg press and they like feel a little dizzy and stuff like that. Like that's yeah. He's like, with that person, try this. If it helps, awesome. If it doesn't, if you don't feel any different, then like...
1: Then just don't just do, don't it, do it
0: Um So yeah, I, I think that's how I'd look at it being like, if you already feel good I probably, and you eat, salt in your diet you eat packaged food and stuff like that i really wouldn't think about it but if you think you've got a low sodium diet and you experience some of these things it's worth trying heaps of people who do try it report having like way better pumps because suddenly the sodium is bringing water into their muscles and stuff like that better energy less slight head feeling like it has potential but if i had to guess in terms of what percentage of people who walk into the gym do i think get benefit from it i think it's a relatively low percentage pretty
1: small amount yeah So next question is, what blood tests should you get if you are struggling with weight loss?
0: This is a tough question to answer, but starting... like I I would personally recommend going to a GP for this and not necessarily going to anybody else because there can be a lot of blood tests people would recommend. But starting off with a GP, looking at it from that perspective... Firstly, not necessarily from the weight loss perspective, but I would get a general blood test just because Mm -hmm. it's free in Australia. So it's like, let's get this information while we're at it. So tests, cholesterol, test blood, glucose, levels, all these things, even just from a general health perspective. Um, If you ask for a general blood test, you will get given all of these things. I would also add vitamin D. I've talked about this heaps as to why I really rate vitamin D and also the prevalence of deficiency. Like I would estimate Mm. that somewhere, we definitely know for sure that at least 30% 30% of Australians are deficient. So it's like, there is a chance <laughs> that you've just got a Just chuck it on there. Like
1: anytime you're yeah. getting a blood test, just yeah. ask for vitamin D. <laughs>
0: and like that doesn't directly affect weight loss, but it's like, you might get sick less frequently. If you, yeah. if you address this, you might get better sleep. You might feel better. You might feel more energetic. There's a, there's a bunch of reasons why it's worth looking at. Um, but then specifically answering the question... The biggest one I'd look at is testing your thyroid hormones, specifically mm-hmm. T3 and T4. Um, they have an, a pretty decent size influence over our total daily energy expenditure. They are involved in our metabolism. If they are lower, so you have hypothyroidism or you're on the brink of that or anything like that, then total daily energy expenditure will be a bit lower. Um, I spoken about it previously, but like the, the highest like recorded decrease in, t- or in at least basal metabolic rate from these hormones being lower is about 15%. So it's never going to be the sole explanation as to why weight loss is difficult, but it is, it is a factor and it's worth looking at for sure. Um, But beyond that, if if you are in a position where it's making a big enough difference from a weight loss perspective, it's also going to be making a big difference from a health perspective. Yeah, It's going to be downregulating a lot of functions because that's what it's doing. The body is conserving calories due to these being downregulated and you will have a bunch of symptoms associated with that. So it's like, you want to address that anyway, So you might as well see it and check and everything like that. And then if you really want to cover everything, it's worth adding cortisol onto this test as well. Um, That's a complex one. I, I don't want to go too deep into that, but it's like, people call that a stress hormone. But, like, beyond that, like, people might hold on to more water if their cortisol is higher. They might find it more difficult to lose body fat. But, like, I don't want to hype that one up too much. That's why I've listed it later in this kind of discussion. (laughs)
1: And even if it is excessively high, again, it's probably something you'd want to address in some way for a multitude of reasons.
0: 100%. And then in men, I'd add testosterone too, like just measuring that. Not because adding – increasing your testosterone should lead to weight loss because it doesn't necessarily – But we do see in studies that people who have low testosterone and are looking to lose weight, if they increase their testosterone, on average, their weight does decrease a little bit. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of things that go into that. What if you just feel more energetic and more ambitious when you've got high testosterone? You're like, maybe I'll do a bit more movement or maybe I'll like... it It could be that kind of indirect factor more so than direct. For the next question, we've got, During deload weeks, should we decrease our calories to maintenance?
1: I get asked this question a lot by clients Um, and uh, I guess my general answer to it is that it's not something I tend to bother with. Like if you are, I mean, I guess it depends on what you're doing, whether you're in a deficit or whether you're in a surplus, Um, but I wouldn't usually change the approach during a deload week. I don't think there's enough change usually in that person's training to really to, to want to make that difference. Um, is it something that you do with your clients?
0: No, I do have a lot of similar thoughts to yourself. One of the reasons why I don't is just keeping it simple.
1: Keeping like, it simple, yeah. I
0: think it adds complexity without really improving results. I agree. And even just looking anecdotally at a lot of top bodybuilders and stuff like that, I don't see a lot of them actually doing that doing, either. Yeah. So it's like, firstly, we don't have research supporting it, but then we also don't really have anecdotal evidence really supporting it either. But when I think about it theoretically... It makes sense to a certain degree. I'm like, well, Mm. firstly, think about being like, is your energy expenditure lower on load weeks? It's probably a little bit lower. So it's like, if we wanted to keep exactly the same surplus as we've been doing, maybe we'd have to take away a couple hundred calories anyway. Yeah. And then... I'm like, is there a downside to decreasing to maintenance? I can't see a downside to decreasing to maintenance.
1: Other than just logistics.
0: Just logistics. And like, we're st- one of the difficulties is we can't really measure energy expenditure perfectly. So it's like we couldn't yeah. even really find maintenance that quickly in that one week to start off with. We'd just be estimating, and that's fine. So I'm like, if somebody wanted to do it, I would do it. And I don't see, I wouldn't hesitate to do it. But I also don't needlessly want to add complexity when I can't see it being better.
1: Yeah, I I see the argument there. Like, if you are in a surplus to gain muscle mass and you're wanting to reduce the amount of body fat you put on and that deload week, you're not really stimulating... The muscles and the way you usually yeah. are, like yeah, I guess it makes sense to be in a smaller surplus or no surplus at all. But it's just such a small time frame that it just probably doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, and like yeah. I, I suppose both of us are really big on small calorie surpluses anyway. Yeah, true. So it's like <laughs> you, it, it, you're gaining so slowly anyway that it's like it just doesn't. It does doesn't
1: matter. matter. Yeah. Yeah. So this has been episode 75 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. If you could leave a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice, that would always be greatly appreciated. But other than that, thanks for tuning in.